it's fucking summertime. It's hot as hell here. It's the 4th of July. Uh, I'm about to go full-on Hollywood. Uh, if you're watching the video, you can see I'm wearing uh, party attire. I'm going to a party in Malibu that Kaj Larson invited me to. Apparently, it's um, next door to Danny DeVito's house on the beach. And there are going to be all sorts of Hollywood-type festivities. So, I'm, I don't know. I don't know. I'm an imposter, but I'm going to see what I can get away with today. Anyway, I thought I would do uh, a quick and dirty AMA for primarily for the Patreon people. Uh, if you're a Patreon supporter of the podcast, you all you got a link to the video. If you're not a Patreon supporter, as I keep saying, all it costs you is a dollar a month. A dollar. For a dollar a month, you get the links that the other people get. So far... I haven't done anything for the high rollers only. I, it's like if you're a supporter, then you get access to all this shit. I'm trying to keep it very socialistic. Um, anyway, maybe there will be bonus material. Like maybe I'll do, you know, a nude AMA. <laughs> well, that would probably be for the people who give less money. If you give more money, I'll keep my clothes on. But we'll, we'll work out the details later. Anyway, uh, okay, I have some uh, some emails for me to answer. Let's see here. Uh, hey, Chris, have you seen anything about male masturbation and ejaculation frequency um, in hunter-gatherers and other groups with little to no private space? Uh, right, okay, interesting. Travis, interesting question. Uh, I haven't seen much about male masturbation in my research uh in fact now it, it's always hard to say when you're talking about research into sexuality conducted by anthropologists because the anthropologists come into these societies with their own um, set of morals and biases and so on which you know they convince themselves that they are trained to ignore or to uh, compensate for uh, that's the, the, the training anthropologists supposedly receive in, in graduate school. But the fact is that even if they were capable of thinking their way out of the box of their own biases, they're still constricted by what sorts of things are academically acceptable to talk about. So, for example, let's say you're living with a hunter-gatherer group in Brazil and your research was going to be on some nutritional thing, but you notice that like they have these masturbation sessions and, and they, there's something about the way they're worshiping their gods that involves ejaculating and, and concert or you know some sort of... Are you going to do your di doctoral dissertation about that? Are you going to go back to University of Minnesota or wherever the fuck you're from, from and tell your uh, thesis advisor, hey, I'd like to switch to this masturbation ritual that I've noticed among the Jivaro. Yeah, maybe not, right? It's probably not a great thing for your career. It might not be a great thing for you even getting out of uh, grad school. You're applying for academic positions. You're at the cocktail party and they say, so what did you uh, do your doctoral research in? Oh, the masturbatory rituals of the Jivaro of the upper Amazon. Yeah, it's not going to go over so well. So there are 
built-in biases within academic culture that would uh, preclude a lot of this research. There are also ethical considerations. It's uh, highly uh, frowned upon for anthropologists to have uh, sexual relationships with the people that they're living with, which, of course, the people they're living with often find to be bizarre. You're a full-grown adult human being. How come you're not fucking anyone? You've been here for a year. You haven't fucked anyone. That's really weird. So that stops them from getting insights into how uh, sexuality functions within these societies as well. So it's a very charged subject. In other words, what I'm trying to say is the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, if you follow what I'm saying. The fact that there aren't a lot of papers written about these things doesn't mean these things don't happen and don't exist. It just means that they get filtered out because of cultural uh, biases and academic considerations. So with that massive caveat, um, there does appear to be a tendency in the data that I've seen suggesting that hunter-gatherer sexuality is pretty vanilla. Uh, There doesn't seem to be a lot of what we would consider to be kink or power play or uh, masturbation or anal sex or even oral sex um, reported in the people who have claimed to, to be observing and studying and reporting what they saw. Now, I would imagine if you're going to do a paper about sexual behavior among the Hadza or something, you know, you're not so uptight that you're not going to mention oral sex. But maybe the people won't mention oral sex, right? If you ask them about it, maybe they would consider that to be something more private than vaginal sex. And obviously, if they know that babies are created by vaginal sex, then they're going to cop to that more readily then they're going to cop to other things. So it's a very complicated uh, issue to talk about sexuality among hunter-gatherers. The other thing that's complicated about it is the difficulty of of sort of uh, transporting concepts between cultures. What I mean by that, you may have heard me talk about the, the people in Papua New Guinea who believe that semen contains the essence of masculinity, So the young boys who want to grow up to be the fiercest, toughest warriors will suck as much dick as possible so they can ingest this essence of masculinity and then grow up to be big, strong, tough dudes. Now, we look at that and we say, oh, evidence of homosexual behavior among these people in Papua New Guinea. Well, they don't consider it homosexual. Uh, They'd be shocked if you suggested that. To them, it's simply macho, tough male behavior. They might come and watch an American football game and see all the the ass slapping and say, ooh, what's going on there? They're homosexuals. And we're like, oh, they're not. They're big, strong football players. So there's all this stuff that doesn't translate across cultures. We see it. We name it something. But within the cultural context, they're naming it something totally different. It has totally different um, meaning than what we're applying to it. So that makes it complicated as well. This is a very long way of saying I don't I fucking don't know. I don't think anyone really knows. I think 
that the frequency of and the ease of heterosexual activity in hunter-gatherer groups probably makes masturbation sort of uh, a non-issue, at least for men. Now, I don't know what the orgasmic uh, frequency is for women. I don't know uh, what the, uh, the sexual satisfaction rates are for women. Um, I know I've read a lot of accounts. You mentioned a lack of privacy. It's, I've read a lot of accounts uh, where the anthropologist is there and he will see uh, you know, a young man sort of looking at a, a woman and, and there's a little smile and then the man will say, yeah, I, I'm going to go for a walk and he'll walk off and then a couple minutes later she'll get up and say, yeah, I'm going to go for a walk and she'll walk off and everyone knows they're going to go fuck in the bushes somewhere. Um, but people won't talk about it generally. And uh, so in these situations where there is very little privacy because everyone's sleeping in one hut together or there's no soundproofing and so on, there are cultural conventions that uh, uh, that provide that privacy. It's like New Yorkers. You know, I've when I lived in New York, I remember sitting at a table where the person next to me was closer to me than the person across the table that I'd come to have dinner with. And you just have to pretend you can't hear that person. There's like an invisible wall that you create there. So I think it's the same thing in a lot of hunter-gatherer societies. So my, my the answer essentially boils down to I don't know if there are any data about uh, masturbatory frequency in hunter-gatherers, but I suspect it's very low because I think that masturbation is generally, not always, but generally uh, um, a response to sexual frustration. And I think the levels of sexual frustration in most hunter-gatherer societies are far, far lower than those experienced in the modern world. Okay. Uh, Jana wrote and said, uh, getting stoned and listening to Roma and Toma has become a particularly awesome source of leisure. (laughs) That's cool. Uh, Okay, I'm wondering what your opinion is on showing sexuality in film or fiction in general. Is it better to be subtle about sex using camera angles and movements that imply and hint at the act, or should filmmakers not be afraid to show sex like it is without dancing around the matter? Of course, it depends on the content of the film, but I'm wondering what your personal preference is and whether or not you have any strong opinions on the matter. Additionally... Does your opinion remain consistent when it comes to depicting violence? All right, well, that's interesting. Let's start with the sexuality first. Uh, Yeah, I I think that it's fine to show sex in films, but I think if you're, there are different ways to do it. I think you can show people having sex without, you know, close-ups on their, genitals um which then becomes i think um you know you can show people eating to show people eating is one thing and having a conversation while they're eating 
there's a film, I can't remember what it's called now, um, but it's a perfect example of this. Um, yeah, I can't remember the actors either. But anyway, the film, there, there's a man and a woman who are lusting after each other. It's like set in the 1800s or 1700s. And they're lusting after each other, but for reasons I don't remember, they can't get together. But they're eating together. And it's it's filmed to make it very clear that them eating together, they're sort of like displacing the uh, the lust into the food. So there's like, you know, the woman's like eating this turkey leg and the juice is running down and dripping onto her breasts. And, and you know, she's sliding fruit down her throat. And, you know, there's just all this like super erotic stuff going on. And so there's a difference between that and just showing people having a conversation while they're eating. <clears throat> I think the same is true of sex. You can show people having sex, uh, show how the way they have sex might illuminate the nature of their relationship. Uh, the things they talk about while they're having sex can be relevant to the character development and to the plot development and so on. Um, and sex is part of life. It's certainly part of relationships. It's part of how people get to know each other and choreograph their interactions. So I think in all those ways, it's relevant to film, to novels, to short stories, to any sort of uh, narrative art form. Uh, but I think that, you know, if you're focusing on the sex act itself, then you're, then it's erotica. Which is fine. I'm fine with erotica too. I'm fine with porn. I, I don't really have any problem with it. But I do think there are differences. I think when you're, you know, you're focusing on the dude's dick going into this woman's pussy, that's not the same as what are they talking about and how does this inform their, you know, their relationship and, and what's going on in their lives and, you know, their interactions with other people. I think those are just two very different things. So an artist has to know what it is she's trying to do, right? What are you trying to accomplish here? Are you trying to turn people on or are you trying to inform them? Or are you trying to bring them into a deeper sympathy with your characters? So I think those considerations determine how you're going to treat sex. Now, the question about violence is funny because the framing of your question presumes that sex and violence are more or less the same thing. I think the language you used was, uh, are you consistent? Does your opinion remain consistent when it comes to depicting violence. Now, I'm always saying question the premise. That's, I'm always advising people. So I'm going to question your premise here. What is the premise? Your premise is that consistency would say that I should have the same opinion about depicting violence that I have about depicting sex. I don't accept that. Violence and sex are two very, very different things. What's the worst thing that's going to happen if you depict sex on screen? People are going to get turned on, assuming that people resonate with what they see on, on screen and want to experience it themselves. Taking that same assumption and, and turning to violence, what's the worst thing that can happen if you show someone torturing another person? Well, some people might want to go out and torture another person, assuming that that resonates determines behavior or or influences behavior on some level. Why would I have the same opinion about one and the other? Doesn't make any sense. Uh, so 
I question the premise, Jana. Uh, I don't, in fact, have the exact same opinion about violence on screen as I do about sex on screen. I think that the Second Amendment, sorry, the First Amendment is uh, sacrosanct, as I've made that point many times. Freedom of speech is probably the most important freedom there is, in my opinion. But so people have the right to to show violence. But I do think that there's a corrosiveness to depicting violence, uh, particularly in the sort of fetishizing of violence that we see in a lot of films, including Tarantino films, which I enjoy, but like I couldn't get through Kill Bill. I sat through the first 15 minutes of that and it was just like, come on, how much gushing blood can I fucking handle? How much gushing blood do I want to handle? See, there are things I don't want to become used to. Um, I also don't like horror films. I don't want to be scared. Fucking life's scary. Trump is scary. What's going on in the environment is scary. My my fear threshold is pretty much maxed out just by dealing with the reality. I don't need to tweak it with fucking movies. You know, it's like, I don't know. It's like, why would I take a pill that made my teeth hurt? Are you kidding? I, I don't like it when my teeth hurt. So, yeah. Um, I know some people get off on it. I, I don't, but some people do. Anyway, uh, depiction of violence, explicit depiction of violence, I think makes us accustomed to things that it's not good to become accustomed to. I think it's literally dehumanizing in in a way um, because I think that humans as a species have a hard time with violence against other humans, which is why boot camp <clears throat> is such an um, extensive mind-melding kind of experience because you have to get human beings to get accustomed to shooting other human beings. There's a lot of research showing even in World War II when the Japanese were rushing at American positions, most of the Americans were shooting above the Japanese heads. They weren't shooting the Japanese themselves. There was something they just couldn't bring themselves to do it even when they were charging at them. It's very fucking hard to kill another person and then it's very hard to live with the psychological effects afterwards. Um, and I think that uh, one of the ways that warlike societies train people to accept the dehumanization of other people in the modern world is by showing it thousands of hours of killing other, a human killing another person, a good guy shooting down the other guy. Uh, we get used to that. It gets deep into us and we can sort of override some of the, the deeper inhibitions against that behavior. Um, so I don't see how that has anything to do with showing two people making love on film. Now, if you're talking about rape, then okay, then I see a parallel. But if you're just talking about sex, sex and violence are not, you know, they get grouped together, but they're not, they're not, the only, the only thing that makes them similar is the fact that our society is freaked out about both of them in one way or another. Other than that, you know, our society is also, you know, I don't know, freaked out about, uh, yeah, I don't know, zoos and, um, you know, just, I don't know, big truck contests or something. But, you know, I mean, that's a really bad example. But you get my point. The fact that society's 
freaked out about something doesn't mean that those things have anything in common other than the fact that society's freaked out about them. So, uh, Sven, big fan of Shrimp Parade. Thank you, Sven. Everyone, I, I get emails all the time. When's the next Shrimp Parade? When's the next? You know, it's really hard to get Joe, Duncan, and me together in the same place at the same time. We all want to do it. We all really enjoy it. We all have a great time. But now Duncan's living in New York. He travels a lot. Joe's always traveling. I travel a lot. So coordinating it so the three of us are in the same place at the same time. Also, it's not a paid gig, right? So, you know, Joe and Duncan, and to a much lesser extent, I get paid sometimes to go and do a thing in a place. So it's like August 11th to 14th, I'm going to be at the Float Tank uh, Conference in Portland this summer uh, doing a live podcast with Duncan. Duncan's paying me for that. The Float Tank Conference is paying me to come there. So like it's a commitment. I'm going to be there. The thing with Joe and, and Duncan is we do it when we can, when it's fun. We're not getting paid anything for it. It's just another podcast. So... If some paid gig comes up, then any one of us are going to say, sorry, dudes, I got to go do this thing. Um, you know, and in the case of Joe, it's a lot. He, he's very busy. And when he gets paid, he fucking guy gets paid. Anyway, uh, I saw Joe the other night and I said something to him about it. And he was like, dude, I would like fly Duncan out here and put him up just so we could do that. You know, and I said, fuck, yeah, I'll like I'll chip in for his ticket. Not that Duncan needs our help, but um so we all want to do it. It's just a question of, of scheduling. It's, it's hard. Uh, you know, I wasn't living in L.A., so I was the problem for a long time. And then I moved here, and like two weeks later, Duncan moved to New York. So now he's the problem. Joe and I are here and ready, but, you know, Duncan. Uh, okay, so he says, uh, here are some questions. What would you change about the current U.S. educational system? Uh I don't know. I haven't been in school in a long time, so I don't really know that much about the current U.S. educational system. But to the extent that it's still a sort of memorize and regurgitate a program, I would replace that with how to think. In other words, I think that we make a mistake in trying to train kids to deal with a particular workplace or world because the world is changing so quickly that whatever it is we're training them to do 10 years from now it's going to be gone so I don't think you know it's like it's like teaching kids how to hunt rabbits when rabbits could be extinct because of global warming in the area where you live so instead of teaching kids how to hunt rabbits we should be teaching kids how to hunt and then whatever it is they're hunting 10 years from now, they can apply those principles. So I think instead of teaching kids how to, you know, te teaching them information, we should be teaching them how to think, teaching them how to argue, teaching them how to question. When I say argue, by the way, a lot of people don't even know. The deeper sense of argue is not to disagree. The deeper sense of argue is to form an argument. You form an argument by laying out your points in an order that builds upon itself. So point A, you establish the context. Point B, you show how this is relevant. Point C, you start laying out the evidence for this. You anticipate your criticisms. You, you look for the weaknesses in your argument, respond to those. I think people don't know how to do these 
these very basic um, elements of, of uh, social interaction. I think that's the problem. I think critical thinking is very important. And as far as I can tell, that's not really being taught much. Um, but to the extent that the educational system is about creating um, people willing to follow orders and do what they're told and show up on time and be quiet and listen to the teacher, I think those are all mistakes. I think what we should be doing is teaching people how to think on their own, how to back up their conclusions, no matter how radical they are, how to listen to counter-arguments, how to acknowledge when the counter-argument is stronger than your argument, how to incorporate new information, sometimes abandoning your position in favor of a new one in light of new evidence. Uh, I think those are the things that we should be teaching people how to do because those sorts of skills are applicable to any world that they find themselves in. Any job, whether you're working in high tech or industry or communications or politics or whatever it is, those skills are going to be important and useful. Uh, so that's what I would do. The problem is that that's not what education is about. Education is about, you know, it's kind of like boot camp. Education is about making people who are going to fit into this system without causing trouble. People are going to put on a fucking tie. What is a tie? A tie is a goddamn choke. It's a, it's a fucking leash. You're wearing a tie. You're somebody's bitch. You're going around with a fucking leash around your neck. So... That's what I would do. I would, I would teach kids how to be fucking troublemakers, but no educational system is going to do that. You need far more teachers. You can't, you can't do that with 30 kids in your class. 30 kids in your class, all you can do is make them shut up and fucking listen to you for 40 minutes, and even that's pretty hard to do. Uh, what's the scariest or most dangerous thing you've ever done? Uh, well... You know, scary and dangerous are two very, very different things. I often think about, like when I get nervous about a public speaking thing, I think about this time I was in Argentina with Stanley. And um, I thought that I was going down to do uh, a quick, uh, like a small chat that he, he does with, you know, 30 hippies sitting in a circle on the floor and we'd be like painting mandalas and talking about our dreams and shit. Um, but as we got closer to the event, Stanley said, oh, um, one of the speakers has um, had to cancel at the last minute. So I told them you could fill in. It's like, okay. Now at this point, I was in my master's program in grad school. And he said, I told them you were an expert on alternative cancer treatments he said what he said yeah isn't that what you're working on in those hospitals in spain now i'd been doing some work with oncologists i'd been studying some psychophysiology but i was far from a world-renowned expert on alternative cancer treatments and anyway we get to i'm still thinking like it's no big deal it's 30 people i can talk about hypnosis and meditation and whatever some shit that i knew so we get down there, they pick us up at the airport, and they say, oh, before we go to the hotel, we thought you'd like to see the venue. And they take us to a venue. It's a fucking giant theater. And they said it's like 2,500 seats. And they said, we expect the first day will be sold out, and there will be television and radio and all this. 
And then the second day, it, we've sold 800 tickets. That date's for, for MDs only. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm supposed to... Oh, and he told them I spoke Spanish perfectly, which I don't. Didn't. I still don't, but I certainly didn't at the time. And then he... Uh, and then they give us a, the, the pamphlet, the publicity that they'd been, you know, <laughs> sending out to people. And there I am listed as Dr. Christopher Ryan, PhD, world famous expert in this. I'm like, I don't even have, fucking have a master's degree, much less a PhD. I'm not an expert in this. I don't speak Spanish perfectly. What the fuck? So that's the most terrified I think I've been, uh, certainly in public speaking, <clears throat> when I got up to do that. So now anytime that I'm, doing any public speaking if I get a little nervous I just think of Buenos Aires and I'm okay by the way it turned out fine I made a joke about how bad my Spanish was and everybody laughed and uh, I bullshitted my way through it now the most dangerous thing I've ever done that's hard to say how do you measure danger is it how close you come to dying in that case it's you know, who knows how many times I came close to dying on the various motorcycles that I've ridden around. I think I've talked on this podcast about the time I almost ran into an elephant in Thailand on a motorcycle. And uh, that actually helped me a lot later when I was riding a motorcycle every day. Uh, anytime I couldn't see around a corner or over a rise or something, I just pictured an elephant standing there in the middle of the road. So I was always prepared to uh, evade an elephant if there was a spot that I couldn't see. I came very close to getting hit uh, on the motorcycle, which then I sold it. I got rid of it, and that's a long story. But it was sort of a miracle that that, that, wasn't, that there was no impact on that day. So things like that, you know, sort of pedestrian things. I, I had a ticket on a bus. I missed the bus. This was in Kashmir going from Srinagar to Ladakh. I had a ticket on a bus, and I didn't really miss it. I was just lazy and tired and cold when I woke up. The bus left at like 7 a.m., and it was like a 20-hour ride or something, and it was freezing cold, and I was in my mummy bag, and I was like, oh, no, I'll go another day. I mean, I just stayed in my sleeping bag. Anyway, that bus was caught in an avalanche, and lots of people died and lost their hands and feet to frostbite and stuff. So, you know, I've been on lots of buses and mountains in South America and Central America and Mexico and in Asia, all over, you know, the hairpin curves and underpaid drivers on speed and, uh, you know, shitty buses, poorly maintained and no guardrails. And that's pretty dangerous. Those lots of those buses go over. Um I don't know. I had an affair with a woman once who was married to an army ranger. That was probably kind of dangerous. Uh, yeah. Like that dude could have flown into, he was based in Afghanistan. I was living in Spain at the time. And uh, yeah, he could have flown to Spain, you know, killed me and been back in Afghanistan before anyone found my body. Luckily, that didn't happen. Uh, so, yeah, it's hard to say the most dangerous thing I've ever done. There, there are a lot of them. Uh, what's the largest animal you could kill with your bare hands? Probably like a 15-year-old boy. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that I could kill, like physically could kill? 
capable of killing if 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 it was like or i could like run down and kill i don't i don't know in that case probably a fucking lizard or something um i don't know i haven't killed a lot of animals with my bare hands but yeah probably a a person uh what's your biggest regret in life so far i don't really have any regrets I mean, there's certainly people I could have been kinder to or things I could have learned earlier, that kind of stuff. But I never intentionally delayed learning anything. And I don't think I've taken pleasure in being unkind to people. So those are pretty honest mistakes, I guess. Uh, What's your relationship like with each of your parents? Uh, it's good. I admire my parents. I love my parents. I think they're both really good people. They, uh, you know, like anyone's parents, they can be annoying. They can be, uh, confusing. Um, but as people, they're fantastic. Uh, I can honestly say that if they weren't my parents, if they were my neighbors, let's say, I'd really like them and I'd probably go and hang out and, you know, bring them food and cut their lawn for them or something. They're, they're really nice people. They're kind to each other. They've always been kind to my sister and me, uh, super generous, um, you know, always sort of passed up opportunities to make us feel bad or to, you know, remind me of some dumb thing I did or some lie I told. There's a lot of um, opportunities to dominate uh, that they just don't take. They're just not interested in it. They're, They're good people. So... Not much else I can say about that. What have they done that intensely helped or hindered you? Well, that's it, basically. They uh, they demonstrated how to be kind and loving to each other and to to me and to my sister and to their friends and to our neighbors. And, you know, they were I just grew up seeing like they're, they're cool. They're good people. Everybody likes them and they don't talk shit about other people behind their back and they are generous with what they have. You know, we had a swimming pool when I was a kid for a while and the neighbors were always welcome to come and swim. And even if we, you know, we'd come home sometime from a vacation and the neighbors and their kids would be in the pool and there was never any like, what the fuck are they doing in our pool? It was just like, hey, how are you guys? Yeah, we'll be out in a minute, you know? So, um, yeah, I, I think seeing them model that behavior was really helpful. And also uh, they were very supportive of me through any of my weirdnesses. You know, my whole life I've been weird, at least from the perspective of sort of conventional suburban American people, which is what my parents are. Um, But they never tried to dissuade me from anything, from my earliest obsession with American Indians when I'm walking around the house in a fucking loincloth and moccasins and, you know, putting feathers in my hair and all this kind of weirdness. 
uh, they were down with that. Like, okay, well, he's interested in something and he's reading a lot and, you know, they just supported it. They didn't need to understand it to support it. And I have absolutely no question that if I were gay or transgender or whatever, as long as I wasn't hurting anyone, they would have been supportive and compassionate and kind. Uh, When I came home with girlfriends who were black and Puerto Rican and Asian and whatever, they never, never had a problem, never thought about it. It never occurred to me that, oh, my parents might be uncomfortable because she's not white. Never even thought of it. Um, and my sister now is married to uh, an African-American dude, as I think I mentioned, really cool guy. It's never an issue, these things. So I think that's great. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's tough because my dad, his parents weren't cool. So I really admire people who, you know, it's easy. It would be easy for me, for example, to be cool to kids. Because I grew up and I saw that, you know, they say you become your parents when you have kids in in some ways. So if I had kids, I think I'd be cool to the kids because adults were cool to me when I was a kid. So that's just sort of natural. That was what would come out of me naturally, I think. But my dad had a pretty abusive father and uh, an abusive, uncomfortable home environment. And so I really admire him for having not pass that on because I know that the the natural thing is it just sort of flows through you into the next generation and so when someone makes a conscious decision to say fuck that I'm going to stop it here I'll swallow it I'll take it to the grave with me but I'm not going to pass that on to my kids I really admire that I think that you know it's like it's like someone who has a you know, a genetic propensity to pass on some disease that's been in the family for generations. And that person says, no, you know what? I'm going to get sterilized and I'm not going to, I'll adopt kids or I'll marry a woman who already has kids and and help her raise her kids, whatever it is. I'm not going to risk passing that on. And it's a sacrifice. Uh, I really admire that. For example, when I was a kid, I, I mentioned we had a pool. I remember my dad you know, I'd, I'd get on his back and he'd go underwater and swim, like, you know, do the length of the pool. And, you know, that way we'd hold our breath together and I'd hold on. And he was like, a, it was like riding a whale. He was this big man and I was holding on. And I remember him doing that, you know, up till I was 12, 13, whatever, and too big to, to do it anymore. And uh, I, I love the water. I grew up in a pool. I have, you know, no fear of the water. I love it. Only as an adult, one time I was talking to my dad about that, and he mentioned something about how he's always been afraid of the water. I said, what do you mean afraid of the water? We used to hang out in the pool all the time, and you you know, would give me rides underwater and all. He said, that always terrified me. I was scared to death to do that. I never knew that. He said, yeah, of course. I didn't want you to be scared. So I think that kind of thing is is beautiful. Okay, uh, from Mark. Oh, God, this is a really hard one, Mark. My mom has a severe gambling addiction, which has resulted in her gambling away over a million dollars worth of property she got from a divorce. 
declaring bankruptcy, attempting suicide many times, and causing a great deal of grief for her family. She sought help from all the official channels, government programs, Gamblers Anonymous, and so on. Over the years, I've taken a far more involved approach where I've fully taken control of her finances, thus preventing access to cash. Although she's gone behind my back, opened up other banks, bank accounts. I attended Gamblers Anonymous meetings alongside her, bought her a car to improve her mobility. Uh, yeah. Okay. So basically, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. This guy has has taken a very active role in his mother's life. She still does crazy shit, like she goes out and buys 12 iPhones on contract, then sells them, and then gambles away the money. So now she's in debt. She's kind of a hopeless case, apparently. I feel burnt out and helpless. I feel I've done everything in my power to help her. Should I remain so closely involved in her recovery or should I take a step back and let her deal with it all on her own? Uh, You don't mention if there are other people in the family and what kind of role they're taking in this, but I two sort of major thoughts here. One is if your mother is seriously um, aware of what she's doing and and wants to change, you might look into Ibogaine. Ibogaine, if you're not familiar with it, is um, derived from an African shrub and it's uh, it provokes a very strong hallucinogenic experience that has been extremely useful in stopping addictions. Uh, it's extremely useful in heroin addiction um, treatment and um, alcoholism and tobacco and whatever. Essentially what it does apparently is some sort of a neurological reset where the person comes out of the experience. One, one experience, by the way, um, but it's a very intense experience. But they come out of the experience like a clean slate and uh, no longer yearning for that dopamine hit or whatever the the surge is that they're getting from their addictive behavior. Um, that's the most effective treatment for addiction that I know of. That combined with supportive talk therapy and sort of structural um, reintegration back into a family setting or social setting that doesn't encourage the behavior. So don't go back and, you know, get a job at a casino or something, right? So if your mother's hit rock bottom and recognizes how fucked up she is and how fucked up she's making everyone's lives around her, uh, and she's willing to consider something like that, I would I would look into that. I believe there are probably centers in Thailand offering this. I know there are places in Costa Rica, Mexico, uh, other places. It's not illegal in most places. Um, I know some people who've experienced this in Gabon, I think, which is where it originates. Um, so anyway, I would look into that. Uh, you can read more about it on the... Um, 
Arrowid website, E-R-O-W-I-D. That's the best website for just straight up information about um, drugs, legal, illegal, whatever, that I know of. Of course, you know, I'm not advocating this. I'm not um, a medical doctor, et cetera, et cetera. It's just something I've heard a lot about. I've interviewed people. You can go back to the archives. I interviewed uh, Martin Polanco, who uh, is an MD, who's running an Ibogaine Center in Tijuana, which unfortunately has now closed um, because of uh, extortion from from uh, drug gangs, I believe. I haven't spoken to Martin about it, but that's what I was led to believe. But in any case, I would look for for that. If she's at the point where she's willing to do something radical and fucking end this. If she's not at the point where she's willing to do something radical and end it, then I think that you are justified in... Man, it's so hard. I... I think the hardest thing that there is in life, probably, if you're a caring, decent person, is coming to the point where you say, here's someone I love, and I just can't help them anymore. Either because my energy isn't helping them, it's costing me a lot, but it's not benefiting them, so it's just a waste. Or uh, because I just don't have any more. I'm dry. And you have to acknowledge when that happens because your own health starts to suffer. Your own life starts to suffer. The time and the energy that you're putting into trying to keep her from fucking everything up is time and energy that you're not putting into your own relationships, your own career, your own education, your own um, basic health and happiness. So there is a bit of this, you know, put the mask on your own face before you start helping other people kind of thing, like on airplanes. I know that's a lot easier to say than it is to do. And the only thing that I can offer to maybe make it a little easier, is that a lot of times when we think we're helping someone, what we're re- we, we think we're helping them because we know how much it costs us. We know how much it hurts us. We know, you know, we're not getting the sleep that we need. We're not getting the, you know, we've got all this stress. We feel the cost of it. So we we extrapolate from the cost to try to understand, to assess the value, right? But sometimes what something costs is not a reflection of the value. Gambling is a great fucking example, right? You spend a night in a casino, it costs you, what, you know, $10,000. Was that experience worth $10,000? Sitting there at that table, drinking watered-down fucking cocktails with a bunch of strangers, Watching your money dribble away. Was that worth $10,000 to you? Fuck no. But that's what it cost. Cost you ten grand. So the fact that it's costing you a great deal to engage with her might make you think that that's the value of what she's getting on the other side. But in fact, it might be that what she's getting on the other side is either valueless or even has a negative value. 
because it's enabling her to continue to do what she does because she can look at her life and say, well, you know, my son still loves me. I can't be that. It's not that bad, you know. It's not like, you know, Margaret, her kids don't even talk to her anymore. I'm better off than Margaret. But then there's part of her that's saying, well, what? When I get to the point where Margaret's at, that's when I'll get my shit together. That's when I'll take shit seriously. So, you know, the alcoholics say you have to hit rock bottom. Maybe what you're doing with all this energy and care and sacrifice is cushioning your mother from hitting rock bottom. And maybe that's where she needs to fucking get. And so, in fact, you're just dragging this process out. I know that's hard to hear. And I might be wrong. But it sounds to me like you've done a lot. And more than she has any right to expect. And she's choosing this path. And ultimately, nobody's going to pull her off that path. You can... Be supportive of her when she decides to straighten up. But you need to save some energy for that time. You need to save some money. You need to save some respect. And you need to take care of yourself so that you're in a position psychologically, financially, physically to help her when it'll really benefit her. It sounds to me like it's not benefiting her. She's going out and doing this bullshit with the phones. And I think you got to step away and say, Mom, I love you, but I can't do this anymore. When you decide that you want help, call me. When you decide that you're really serious, call me. Until then, I'm out. Maybe that's what she needs to hear. I'm sorry, I don't have any magic pills. That's a really hard one. All right, Thomas. Chris, on the podcast, you seem to have a really good memory for important things you've read. I'm curious about your reading habits, particularly about reading books. When you read a book, do you practice any form of note-taking, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, Yeah, it depends how I'm reading the book. If it's a physical book, I... I have like, I I do little checks in the margin. I sometimes underline, I sometimes highlight. Honestly, it depends if I've got a pen around, you know. Um, If I'm reading it in the Kindle, I do notes in the Kindle and then it forms a, a document of all your notes, all your underlinings, which is really nice that you can then export to the computer and then you can, you know, copy and paste and, uh, use those extracts as you want. Um, but basically with books, especially nonfiction books, I, I, I'm reading these days to extract information because I'm normally reading it uh, with an eye toward informing what I'm writing um, or intend to write in the future. So I use Evernote, which is a very uh, powerful note keeping system. Uh, and I also use Google Keep, which is also uh, a good note keeping system. Uh, that's about it. Novels. I, I haven't read a novel in a long time, unfortunately, um, because I love reading novels, but you know, uh, 
So novels, yeah, if there's something I enjoy, I, I underline it and I'll go back and look when I finish the novel. Sometimes I take notes on the back page of ideas, you know, page 27, he says this and that reminds me of that. Or or I'll make notes in the margin where like, oh, he's talking about this here, but he said something different there. And I'll make a note like, look on page 27 and go back. So yeah, I try to engage and get into the book. I don't read the book as a distant thing that I'm you know, just observing through a window. I try to get in there with it. Uh, in a similar vein, do you keep a daily or semi-regular journal? I used to. When I was traveling, I kept a journal because uh, I spent a lot of time alone and just sort of, you know, wanted to remember stuff. I've got them around here somewhere. They're right up there from back in the 80s and 90s and all that. Uh and it's interesting to look at them because there are ideas in there that I feel like I've just thought of recently. And it's like, oh, Jesus, I've been thinking about this for 30 years. That's weird. Um, but these days I don't. These days this is sort of a journal, you know, where I'm the podcast. I'm I'm talking about what I'm thinking at the moment. I'm talking about what's going on in, in my life. So this is as close as I get to a journal right now, which is kind of funny because it's so public. Uh, Carl, Chris, is there a wine that goes with the fall of Western civilization? Perhaps a Tuscan red, the type that Nero drank while Rome was burning. I'm in my 40s with a job, kids, responsibility, but I'm also a part-time artist. I enjoy listening to your podcast, find it enlightening and entertaining. I decided to contribute because I strongly believe that advertising should not be ubiquitous in our society. And I felt that your soul was being crushed when you were reading those ads. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you might be right. My main comment is for the people who can't just pick up and travel the world or do what they love immediately. My main goal is to someday do the art full time and to travel. I found through many screw ups along the way that if you can't make big changes, you should make small incremental changes that first start with getting your mind right. I agree with Alan. I'm oh, sorry, Carl. He says, read Alan Watts. That's why I said Alan. Thoreau and other authors. Then in my case, just trying to do what I love in my spare time. Enjoy life and try to keep focused on the big picture. It's sometimes hard when you want to make big changes, but sometimes little changes add up when you're not looking. Yeah, mad Carl. I certainly agree with that. Uh, I think that... Uh, you know, a lot of times people use the big changes as a way to avoid making the small changes. Um, and the small changes are what really affect your life. I was thinking about that this morning. Um, you know, people want this magic bullet to happiness, right? If I find the perfect woman then I'll be happy I get the perfect job I'll be happy if I have a net worth of x number of dollars I'll be happy yada 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 uh if I get this fucking fly out of my face I'll be happy why do flies want to be in my face all the time anyway uh when in fact the what's going to make you happy are recognizing little things that give you enjoyment that you can do every day. Uh, for example, I like pissing outside. Now, I live in a place where I can piss outside and it doesn't, I'm not pissing on someone's lawn. So that's nice. I wouldn't recommend pissing in your neighbor's driveway, but I like pissing outside. There's something about walking outside naked in the morning 
and just pissing in the forest that I, you know, I feel in my weird little way, like I'm, you know, bonding with nature or something. Uh, a friend of mine was telling me uh, that he was, he took a piss the other day and a hummingbird came and was drinking his urine while he's pissing. And he's like, oh my God, I'm a fucking God. It's crazy. Beautiful. So, uh, you know, unless he poisoned the hummingbird, I don't know what kind of hangover he had, if any. But so that's something I like doing. I like taking my down comforter and putting it outside in the sun in the morning so that it get it puffs up and gets all fluffy and warm. And then at night when I crawl into bed, I can still smell the sunlight on it. And I feel really comfortable and, and I, I relish that moment. There are these little things, just little things that seem stupid. I like washing the dishes, for example. I have a dishwasher. I rarely use it. I like washing the dishes. It gives me a feeling of completion. It's just, you know, you watch it. it, it there's a bunch of dirty dishes and now they're gone. It's something that's tangible. And um, I like washing my car. Yeah, I could take it to a car wash, but I've got a hose and a driveway. And I like the van particularly. I like washing it. I like, uh, even if I use a car wash, I'll take it to one of those self things with a high pressure, you know. I just like doing it. It's not that I'm trying to save three bucks. It's that I get off on it. And I think we get off on little things that might seem stupid and inefficient. And certainly, you know, it probably uses less water to use the dishwasher or it's, you know, I don't know, whatever. There are lots of arguments you can make for this or for that. But I think it's really important to, to have little things in your life that you enjoy. Um. You know, I'm all in favor of, of masturbation, for example, you know, like uh, getting back to question number one. If that makes your day better, well, go for it. You know, what the hell? Why not? You're not hurting anybody. Uh, so whatever it is that whatever the things are that give you those little jolts of satisfaction, I think uh, that's really important. Uh, I think it's important to recognize it. I think it's important if it's if it's food or or something like that, like notice the minimum amount that you need to get that satisfaction and then just stop there, right? So you don't get into the, for example, I haven't succeeded in this yet, but I, every once in a while I'll go on a, a program where I'll only allow myself one beer at most per day. Not that I drink beer every day, but if I do, I'll only have one because I found that that first beer, especially on a hot day, is so fucking good. It just tastes so good in the cold. and oh, It's great. Then the second beer is like, yeah, it's pretty good. And then the third beer, it's like, whatever. Now I'm just drinking beer. You know, uh, I don't know how many beers have I had. It's like you're just drinking water, whatever. So the, the curve, the pleasure curve diminishes very quickly. And so I think the, the smart thing is keep the pleasure high, the ratio of pleasure to to destruction, to, you know, whatever, toxicity or whatever, make that ratio work in your favor. Get the maximum amount of pleasure, the least amount of risk or, or um, danger or whatever. Uh, you know, in the case of pissing outside, there is no danger or risk, so I don't need to worry about it. And it goes well with drinking beer. So drink beer at night, take a piss in the morning. Life makes sense. It's perfect. All right, I'm done. That's uh, an hour. Wow, I've been doing this an hour. So I've got to go to this party. I got to leave pretty soon. 
and uh, I'm going to be drinking beer, and I'll probably have more than one. But, you know, every day can't be a day of perfect discipline. So happy 4th of July, everybody. And uh, although I probably won't post this for a couple of days since I got to run right now, uh, hope you're good. And, uh, oh, I uh, came across a quote that I thought uh, I would read to you uh, to celebrate the 4th of July. It's from uh, George Bernard Shaw. He said, Patriotism is fundamentally a conviction that a particular country is the best in the world because you were born in it. America. Fuck yeah. Ciao.